0: Okay, and the story begins. We are on page 21, middle of the page. Abaye. By raise of hands, who is familiar with the character Abaye? Abaye is a one of the sages of the Talmud. And as you read and study the Talmud, you will see Abaye's name come up very, very often. Again, the Talmud is a... Um, is a recording of discussions, discussing the Mishnah, discussing the oral tradition of Torah. And one of the famous sages is Abaye. I always had a difficulty with this paragraph in the davening. And it wasn't even so much a logical difficulty as much as more emotionally, like, why am I saying this? (laughs) I'm trying to, in. why am I talking about what Abaye would do in talking about the priestly function? Like, what does this have to do with anything? And it was it's just a paragraph. How long does it take to say? But it always felt like a drag. And one of the most beautiful things about giving a discussion, leading a discussion on the sitter is you get to learn more about the sitter and more about the significance of everything. And as we'll soon see, there is so much embedded in this prayer. I don't know if it's so much of a prayer as much as it is a passage. This is literally a cut and paste excerpt from the Talmud. And here and we're reading about what Abaye would recount in his morning prayers. Again, prior to the existence of formal prayer, we would give sacrifices. There was informal prayer. Talk to God from your heart. And you articulate your needs, you articulate your praises in in your own language. And then at some point, we have the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, we couldn't give sacrifices. So let's have a structured prayer that actually is representative of the sacrifices, which is why prior to prayer, we read about the sacrifices. And now as part of the prayer service, we read about how Abaye would recount the daily sacrifices. To backtrack where we're holding chronologically here, or not chronologically, but um, what we've been doing, we've talked about the korbanot, the sacrifices, the korban tamid. We've talked about the ketorit, the incense. We've talked about the spiritual significance of the korbanot offerings as well as incense. We read several verses that follow the incense that, Talk about betachon, trust in God. And now Abaye comes and sums up the whole thing for us. He just literally sums up the whole service. Um, We're going to read it quickly, quickly read through this paragraph. So we can just get into the the meat of it. Abaye recounted the order of the daily priestly functions on the authority of tradition and in accordance with the view of Abba Sha'ul. In the Mishnah, there were varying opinions of what the order of morning services. We know what the service was in the morning in the temple, clearly from the Torah. We know there were sacrifices. We know there were libations. We know there were incense. We know there was lighting. The we know all these different things. What we don't know is the order. Abaye would reiterate what that order was in accordance of the sage of his time or prior to his time, will. The large pile of wood was arranged on the altar before the second pile from which the fire was taken for the incense offering. The second pile for the incense offering was arranged before the placing of the two logs of wood on the large pile. The placing of the two logs of wood came before the removing of the ashes from the inner altar. The removing of the ashes from the inner altar preceded the cleaning of the five lamps of the menorah. The cleaning of the five lamps of the menorah preceded the sprinkling of the blood of the daily burnt offering. The sprinkling of the blood of the daily burnt offering preceded. Where are we? <laughs> the cleaning of the remaining two lamps of the menorah. Okay, you'll soon see the method to our madness here. Just hold on tight. The cleaning of the two lamps of the menorah preceded the incense offering. The incense offering preceded the burning of the parts of the daily burnt offering. The burnt offering, the, the burning of the parts of the daily burnt offering preceded the meal offering. The meal offering preceded the offering of pancakes. The offering, I love pancakes. The offering of pancakes preceded the wine offering. The wine offering came before the Musaf. the additional offerings of Shabbat and festivals. The Musaf of offering of, of Shabbat and festivals preceded the placing of the two censors of the frankincense. We're just literally going through the whole morning daily Korbanot service. The frankincense censors preceded the daily afternoon burnt offering as it is written in the cone shall arrange the burnt offering on the altar and the burnt and burn it on the fat of the peace offerings. With this, all the offerings were completed. Okay, now you know what daily life was like summed up in the temple, in the Beit HaMekdash. And the tradition actually became to recite this paragraph daily of how Abayu would recount this, because it literally sums up everything that took place. The order of the day. Our order of the day is the sitter, their order of the day was this service. Okay. What bothered me by reciting this in, past, in the past is why If we believe that our sages who structured the sitter are truly wise and truly sensitive, spiritually sensitive, we must believe that there's a spiritual reason, a deep meaningful reason, a relevant reason of why we're saying this. and we're soon going to unmask that. But I'm going to let let's take a step back we, we to, to really understand this we're going to need to understand some Talmudic structure. Okay, you with me? we got to understand some Talmudic structure here. God gives us a Torah, right? The Torah is given to us in Mount Sinai. The five books of Moses. In those five books of Moses sprinkled throughout are the 613 commandments, but the commandments as written in the Torah are quite ambiguous. So when it says put on tefillin, well, what are tefillin? <laughs> put a sign on your arms and an ornament between your eyes, like it says in the Shema. Well, what does that mean? How do you make them? How do you put them on? When do you put them on? Who puts them on? Who doesn't put them on? Put a, put, put a scroll on your doorpost, right? How high? What does this scroll consist of? What type of doorposts require it? What type of doorposts don't require There's a lot of details, of the what, where, why, who, when, how that are not clear in the Torah the Torah literally just tells us the bare bones of what but all of this was clarified by God to the Jewish people and handed down from generation to generation orally so God gave us the written Torah he then explained the background behind it and Moses explained that to the Jewish people and they passed that down from generation to generation this is known as the oral Torah are you with me? Okay. At some point, um, pretty much after the destruction of the Second Temple about 2,000 years ago, now Jews have to work for a living. (laughs) We're in exile. There's a lot more pressure. And the ability to retain that immense amount of information, Uh, sages saw that, oh my gosh, people are starting to forget this. Where is Judaism going to go? If we don't have the oral Torah, Judaism is gone. There is no such thing as Judaism without the oral Torah. If you have just a written Torah, there literally is no Judaism because we're not going to know how to do anything. We're just going to have a bunch of do this, do that, but we're not going to know how, what, when, where, why, who. We need that oral Torah and we cannot forget it. So they decided let's write it down, but we're going to write it down in as a brief summary. And you had a rabbi, Rabbi Yudha Anasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince. I hope this isn't superfluous information, is it? We're all good. Sort of? Okay. Rabbi Judah, the prince, Rabbi Yudah Anassim, collected from various rabbis uh, their talking points on the transmission of of the oral Torah. It was written down in very brief summary form. And he collected from this rabbi and from that rabbi, he called this the Mishnah. And you have headlines, teachings. Rabbi Akiva says this. The sages say this. Rabbi Abba Shaul, who we just quoted earlier, says this. This is the generation of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. This is the generation of the Mishnah. But it's very, again, it, it's more expansive than the written Torah itself. But it's still, and, and it fills us in with background. But at the end of the day, it's still pretty brief. It's like notes. What happens when you go back and your kids read your notes from college? So when you wrote the notes, you knew what you were talking about. You were able to just write the, you know, the bullet points, and you don't have to write the whole thing. You, you know, when, I, when I'm, as I'm giving this discussion here, I have my notes here. Hold on, chicken scratch here. Can you see that? Okay. <laughs> I'm I'm not writing a script. You know, right? it's not a performance. Writing points of what I like to talk about. So, were somebody else to read this, they're going to need help filling this in. Right? My kids might look at these notes and start debating what was my intention. And that's what happened with the next generation. The next generation is, okay, we're going to yeshiva. We're going to study Torah. And we're going to under- try to understand how to do the mitzvahs. Let's understand this Mishnah. This is brief. And they start discussing. They start analyzing. They start trying to understand the context. And they're debating in all practice, do we follow this opinion? Do we follow that? This is the, what the Talmud is. The Talmud is discussing the Mishnah, trying to understand it. The Mishnah is the brief, um, recording, written recording of the Oral Torah. The Talmud is discussing that. Okay, you with me? Okay. In the Mishnah, there is a debate. Hold on one second. Thanks. Okay. Um, sorry, can you hear me? Okay, in the Mishnah, there's a debate. What is the order of the incense? Do incense precede the lighting of the candles in the temple or do the lightings of the candle uh, candles precede the incense? Um, according to Abba Shaul, one of the sages of the Mishnah, Let's take a look back at our paragraph here. We're on, hold on. Literally smack in the middle of the paragraph, but if you count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12 lines from the bottom. If you count 12 lines from the bottom, do you see that? The cleaning of the two lamps of the menorah preceded The incense offering, which means you prepare the lamps of the menorah, then you do the incense offering. That was the opinion of Abba Sha'ul, and that's what Abaye would reiterate. Abaye was in the Talmud, okay. The truth is, it was a debate. Debate between the sages of the time and Abba Sha'ul. Abba Sha'ul maintains... Prepare the candles, then do the incense. The sages said, it's actually not 100% accurate. How many candles were there on the menorah in the Beit to make this? Anybody know? How many branches? Seven. Seven branches. Close. Because <laughs> there was a middle one. This one. There were seven branches on, the, on this menorah. They would prepare five of them, then do the incense, then they would prepare the last two. Okay, this may seem like nitty gritty details, but you'll soon see the significance of this and how this affects how your day is going to be tomorrow. (laughs) Just, just hold on. There's a method to my madness here, but it's important that we recap this. I know it may seem technical, but there's a there's a reason there's a method to my madness here. So, opinion number one, the sages. Prepare the first five candles. Do the incense. Prepare the last two candles. The opinion of Abba Sha'ul, who de- argues on the sages, is prepare all seven candles, then do the s- incense. Incense are its own separate thing. Don't do it in the middle. In practice, were we to have a beta miktash today, who would we actually follow? We would follow the sages. This general rule is, in a Mishnah, when you have debates of what the law is, the tradition that they've had, Whenever you follow the majority, the sages were a group of rabbis. Abba Shaul was the minority, and Maimonides and other commentaries point out that the ruling follows the sages. In fact, on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is the longest musaf of the year. It's a very long musaf service. The reason why it's a one of the reasons why it's a very long musaf service is because we recount the whole service that took place, and we explicitly discuss the order. In accordance of the sages, which means first five candles, then the incense, then the last two candles. However, in our daily prayers, despite uh, we actually uh, um, recite the opinion of Abba Sha'ul, which means the incense are its own separate thing, and they do not precede candlelighting. Even though the law does not go in accordance uh, with Abba Sha'ul. There's a, do you see the irony here? In practice, we don't follow Abba Shaul's opinion, yet we're following him. Why? On Yom Kippur, we explicitly recite the other opinions. Why? Okay. Again, let's take a step back here. What does Ketoret represent? What do incense represent? Incense represent the soul connection with God. In fact, our sages tell us, to, to, just to give you a better picture of what the structure, the, the logistical structure of the Beit HaMikdash looked like, you had two altars. You had an altar, external altar, you had an internal altar that was in a, there was various checkpoints in the Beit HaMikdash, various levels of holiness. In the holy area, you had the altar, internal altar for the incense, Externally, you had the altar for the offerings, for the korbanot, for the sacrifices. And our sages tell us that the outside altar for sacrifices corresponded to the body. That the body wants meat. The internal altar where incense were offered corresponded to the soul. Because in because scent is representative of the soul, which is why we smell the besamim the incense Saturday night, because the soul is sad, the Shabbat is leaving. The Shabbos is leaving. Incense represents the soul connection to God. Incense represents the notion that I'm connected to God because I'm a Jew, because of who I am, not because of what I do or how I think or how I feel. We mentioned last time and several times ago the word for incense, Hebrew, ketoret, comes from the Aramaic word katar, which means knotted. I'm knotted with God. I'm connected with God. What do candles represent? What does the menorah represent? The soul. It also represents the soul, right? Just like the Keturah, but a different element of the soul. Right? What Think, what would the difference be? It represents light, the revelation, the experience of the soul. So you have two parts of you. You have who you are, and you have your experiences. Right, And in a perfect world, there's a se- there, there's a seamless flow from my identity to my experience. In our generation, day and age, there's a lot of ident- identity crises. Crises, no, crises, crises, right? Identity crises. There's a discrepancy or a, a discord between my human experience and who I actually am. I may experience reality in one way, but the truth is that's not true, right? And and the truth is, unfortunately, on a very drastic level, most uh, many Jews uh, live like this, where, you know, R- R- Rabbi Gordon, of blessed memory, his father, you know, Rabbi Gordon from Chabad.org. So his father was a chaplain, a uh, uh, hospital chaplain in New Jersey. He used to visit patients. And he asks this one patient, would you like to put on tefillin? He was Jewish. He says, Rabbi, I'm Jewish in my heart. He says, that's why you keep having to go back to the cardiologist. <laughs> you got to spread it out a little bit. <laughs> There's a discrepancy it, uh, between how I f- who I am as a Jew and how I experience that. A lot of Jews don't have that experience. They don't know. They weren't born into it. They weren't educated. They weren't given the right tools. Judaism does offer those tools, but not every... Unfortunately, what we're learning now is Judaism's best-kept secret. (laughs) It's not supposed to stay a a secret, though. You got to share it. But the point is, there's the katorit, which essentially means the incense. I'm a Jew, my soul. There's the candles, the experience, the light of the soul. And in a perfect world, they're aligned. Were there to be a beta mikdash today, the Ketoret would precede the candles because they would be one continuous flow. You'd recognize I'm a Jew. That's the Ketoret. That's the incense. Let's afterwards light candles. Let's radiate that light. Let's experience that. Experience that intellectually. Experience that emotionally. Behaviorally. Let my... Soul so uh, seamlessly flow into who I am as a human being rather than have this tension between my Jewish identity and my daily self. This is the opinion of these sages. The incense precede the candle lighting because the incense lead to emitting light, feeling, uh, being recognizing that on the inside, Judaism is who I am. It's not just what I appreciate or what I'm passionate about, because maybe I'm not passionate, right? It's just who I am. That's going to influence what I appreciate, what I'm passionate about, how I behave. That's the candles. It's one continuous flow. That's the opinion of the sages. And were we to have a Beit mikdash? That was the reality during the time of the Beit HaMikdash, especially the first Beit mikdash. That was the reality. We experienced Judaism emotionally, intellectually, cognitively, behaviorally. The candles and the incense were aligned. The body and soul were aligned. The reason why we don't recite the opinion of these sages is because that's just not the reality today. We don't have a Beit HaMikdash. We don't have free access to experiencing Judaism. In the same way. It takes a lot of work. You got to study the tanya. got to study other works. You got to internalize. We got to fabring. We got to say l'chaim together. We got to do mitzvahs. We got to daven. We got to really work to align ourselves. So what often happens is the opinion of Abba Shaul, where you have the candles first and the incense, the fact that I'm a Jew is its own own separate thing which is a double-edged sword on the one hand my identity as a jew doesn't always translate into the experience of feeling jewish at least not not uh with unless there's some sort of catastrophe <laughs> where I'm inspired um on the other hand no matter what even if I'm lacking that experience I finished lighting candles already right afterwards I still have the katorit. I'm still a Jew because my Jewish identity is not doesn't is not defined by my experience it has the ability to define my experience and even if it doesn't define my experience which means even if experientially i don't feel like i appreciate judaism emotionally i don't always i don't feel like i'm connecting we have those days right behaviorally i'm just this is a drag i can't do it realize that there's right i finished lighting candles and i'm done Afterwards, we still have the ketorit, we still have that essential connection. Even if there's a discord between feeling Jewish and being Jewish, I'm still always Jewish. The only thing is, it takes a little bit of digging. Got to dig really deeply to experience, uh, uh, to see another, to see ourselves as Jews because of who I am, not just because of how I feel. To believe that I'm still a valuable, precious soul in the eyes of God, even when I'm not behaving that way, and even when I'm not feeling that, because I have the Keturus, that takes a lot of digging, but that's, that's what it's all about. I'll tell you a great story. I'm going to tell you three stories. One of them you've heard already, but I love it, so I'm just going to say it again. Because I absolutely love it. Last week uh, on uh, on Shabbos we marked Gimel Tammuz, the third of Tammuz, the twenty eighth. site of the Rebbe. Somebody once asked the Rebbe, "What is what is your function? What is the why can't Jews should be connecting to God, not to people? That's a Christian thing. are connecting to people. What what do we need a Rebbe for? It's a he was very." confused about the concept and the Rebbe said I'm like a archaeologist I dig and I find things the Rebbe then told him the truth is anybody can dig and find things but what I find is artifacts that are of value right archaeologists know where to dig and how to dig and the Rebbe proceeded to tell him that Sigmund Freud knew how to dig what would Freud come up with? Dirt. Adler, another famous psychologist, knew how to dig, and what would he come up with? Dirt. The Rebbe said, I'm here to dig and not come up with dirt, but to come up with wellsprings, come up with an invaluable resource, come up with, with valuable artifacts. We all have this internal connection, even if it's not our daily experience. Our job is to find somebody who could help us dig. Let's say story number two, a similar story. Imagine being at uh, 770 Eastern Park with Chabad World Headquarters. By raise of hands, who has been there? John, I know you've been there. Sharon, have you been there before? Sorry, I couldn't find the mute button. Oh, no worries. <laughs> um, I haven't been there. I really want to go one day, but I've never been there. Okay. I see everybody get engaged, go somewhere like, to the river's
1: grave there? Yes. But,
0: yes. but I've never been. D- David, have you been yet? I walked by but I didn't go in. Okay. Okay, Here's so a- uh, imagine you've seen on the videos and pictures. It's a it's a it's a it's a room that can let's say legally fit 500 people, I don't know. 1000 people. Uh, you have 5000 people, 4000 people crammed in there. Rabbi Gordon's father, again, we mentioned before, once brought somebody to the Rebbe's for bringing, and, and he says, Rabbi Gordon, I don't understand. If I were the Rebbe, I would make sure there's a lot more room for people. So he said, if you were the Rebbe, there would be a lot more room for people. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, imagine you're in this room packed with people. There's the singing, there's the dancing. Imagine the spirituality that, that's in that room. So now this fellow is there, this Jew. and this was a Jew f- who did not uh, grow up apparently with a in an observant background and was more um, I don't know what the word is secular more, more secular. and he was so inspired. He he felt something. He actually went up to the Rebbe to say lachaim to the Rebbe. And just to say, thank you. I'm, this is this is doing this is an amazing event. The Rebbe said to him, What is your name? He said, My name is Yitzchak. He knew his Jewish name. He said, My name is Yitzchak. The Rebbe said, Do you know who Yitzhak was? Besides your, you know, your namesake. Who is Yitzchak? Isaac. Who is Yitzchak? He said, I know he was one of our patriarchs, but that's all I know. I didn't go to Hebrew school. I don't have a Jewish education. All I know is. So the Rebbe said, you know what Yitzchak used to do? Yitzchak used to dig wells. We know that from the Torah, that Yitzchak used to dig wells and come up with fresh water. Well springs. You got to go out there and dig wells. Find another Jew, he says. This is what the Rebbe tells him. Find another Jew and be like your namesake, Yitzchak. Dig, but not to find dirt, God forbid, but to find water. And he says, the way you do that is you find a Jew and say, let's put on tefillin together. Let's do a mitzvah. Which, by the way, going back to the ketoret, the incense, which represents the essence of the soul, the wellsprings, has the same numerical value as 613, representing the mitzvah. The Rebbe said, go up to him and Let's put on tefillin. He says, Rebbe, I don't even put on tefillin. He says, beautiful. You could do two birds. He didn't say this. I'm paraphrasing, but you could kill two birds with one stone. You could dig and find out the find the best within yourself, find the best within someone else simultaneously, and the, the Rebbe empowered this person to be a leader, to be a digger. To find the ketoret, the the the, the essential connection, the knowledge you had within them. Story number three. The previous labavitcher Rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson was under um, was almost was almost actually given capital punishment in communist Russia, because he headed underground educational systems yeshivas and schools and let's keep jewish education going yeah but it's illegal but doesn't god want this (laughs) and he risked his life for this judaism is alive because of this and we actually celebrate the miracle that took place um, of his release it was a miraculous bureaucratic miracle he was for sentenced to death, then they lightened him up and said, you know what, you could just be sentenced to Siberia. And they eventually, they just said, you know what, just, just go, you're free. And he ended up being totally free, and that's the 12th of Tammuz. He was being interviewed, or interrogated, if you will, by a communist. One of the communists, by one of the KGB soldiers. This KGB was a Jew obviously very lost and very confused and perplexed. And he says, Rabbi, you actually believe in this stuff? You believe that there's a God? You believe in a higher power? You believe that there's a objective mission that you were given? that You're needed? Come on, man. You Can't prove any of that. So he says, not only do I believe in this, but you believe in this. You believe that there's more than what meets the eye. He says, no, I don't. I'm cynical. So he says to him, Who gave birth to you? He says, My mother. He says, Oh, yeah, did you see it? Do you remember it? Somebody told you this is your mother. You, you probably didn't even take it. I don't even know if there were DNA tests back then. Um, you have no proof. So somebody told you this is your mother and you believe it. Yeah, in no, other you, words, you do believe and you can believe. Your yetzer hara, your evil inclination, your animal soul is, is preventing you from believing in God, from believing in, in the Torah. But you believe, you can believe if you wanted to. The Rebbe was trying to dig out the katorit, his essential connection. You are connected and you have that ability to believe. And we read this every day because the message is, I just want to leave with this important message. What we read over here is the opinion that not it is not the opinion that the katoret incense precedes candle lighting, which means if I'm essentially connected, I will experience the light. but actually we read the opinion that states, middle of the page, that the candle lighting precedes the incense. Even if I'm done experiencing that light or I haven't yet experienced that light, I can still independently, realize that I'm essentially connected, which is the representation of the incense. Even if there's a discord between reality and human experience that doesn't take away from the validity of that reality. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it.